0: So everybody uh, is going to get a chance to participate today. I knew it was going to be a smaller crowd because of the marriage retreat. And by the way, I need to read a scripture about marriage. So let me look that up. Nancy already knows which one I'm going to read. But um, this one particularly applies to those of you who are single. How many of you are single? Raise your hand if you're single. Okay, you are actually in really good shape here. Let me read. There's actually some scripture that talks about the advantages of being single in First Corinthians 7. And so the Apostle Paul writes this, that it's better to be single in view of the present distress. It's better for a person to remain single. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. So if you are married, then don't, don't seek to separate. But um, if, if you're not married, that's good. And then he says in verse 28, uh, if uh, those who marry will have worldly troubles, you're going to have a lot of troubles if you get married. Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> and I want to spare you of those troubles. So if you're single, there's a lot of troubles you're avoiding. And you, the, the testimony to that is all of the people who are not here they went over uh, the last weekend, and they went over to Ventura to fix their troubles. That's right. <laughs> uh, and, so, and so really what Paul is saying there is there's stress in the world in the in the culture that he lived in. And so if you're single, it allows you actually to serve the Lord in some unique and special ways uh, that you're not giving yourself distracted thoughts other directions. So I thought that would be apropos for today celebrate those of you who are single who are with us today. The word of God is a lamp unto our feet. And so I want to share with you some things that have been really, really practical to me on uh, on the word of God. And I'm going to ask uh, Ken, would you be ready to um, share this microphone with whomever in a couple of minutes? I'm going to ask some people to read. And um, what I've I've done is I just want us to to read some verses here, and I want you to guess the way I describe this verse. So I've got like five or six verses, I think, here, I think five texts, and I want you to guess my description. Most of the time it's a one-word description, and in none of the cases do I use this descriptor, this word, uh, do I use a word from the text? I sum it up in my own sort of summary word, except in this first one I've got two summary words. But neither word, uh, I believe neither word is actually in the text. So uh, Mary Jo is our friend from from the Palm Desert Church of Christ. Would you read uh, the one I gave you, Mary Jo? Yeah. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so out of that scripture, I said the word of God is, let's see if you can guess, who can guess what words I f- would fill in there. And this this is my perception, so you might have a different word, but... Out of that scripture, I said the word of God is two things. It's what and what? Who has a guess? I think so. It's what? Perfect. perfect. That's a great word. And that might fill in that blank for you, but that's not what I chose. But that's a, that's a good <laughs> The word of God is perfect. That's a good word. Alive Alive is a good word. Complete Complete is a good word. Okay. Active. active. Okay. Well, here's what I put. So those are all great. And you can fill those in. But here's what I put. The word of God is go forward, is inspired. It's breathed by God. It's breathed out by God. It's inspired. It's God breathed. And it's useful. You said perfect. You said active. Anyway, all of those words are good, but the word of God is inspired by God. This is this is not of human origin. This is from God Himself. And so this is the the most special book we have because it's from God and it's useful. It makes us perfect. It makes us complete. uh, It makes uh, you know it's active in our lives. So it's a it's a great great word. Hebrews 4:12. So I've asked Angie. So if you could pass the microphone to Angie, Angie is going to read Hebrews 4:12. Okay. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay. So I've I've chosen a word to summarize that, and and the word I chose is not included in that text. So what do you think I chose? What would you? What word would you use to summarize that text? The word of God is what? Convicting. Convicting. All right. It's good. Anybody else? Cutting. Okay. It cuts. Great. Okay, I wrote, oops, I wrote backwards. Here we go. I wrote effective. The Word of God is effective. Sometimes I'm meditating on the Word of God, or I'll hear a message and I'll think, that message is perfect for you know my wife or you know someone else that message is perfect for someone else and then I'll be meditating on it and it'll be about forgiveness or something and I'll realize that as I'm meditating on it I've got resentment towards someone and the word of God is just convicting me like crazy it's just cutting someone mentioned cutting yeah that word of God is not only good for someone else it's good for me right now because I haven't forgiven somebody so I need to need to do that The next scripture we're going to read, Paul is going to read. So if the microphone could find Paul, Paul is going to read from Isaiah 55 and verse 11. All right, Isaiah 55, verse 11. Or 10 and 11. Uh, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Amen. Who could guess what I wrote down? What would you write down there to summarize that? Go ahead. It's nourishing. I should have written that down. That's great. (laughs) That's better than what I wrote down. That's really good. The word of God is nourishing. What else? What would you guys write down as a summary word? Refreshing. Refreshing. Fulfilling, I wrote down the Word of God as fruitful. And those are all good summary statements of that. The Word of God refreshes us, it fulfills us, it's fruitful. When God sends it out, it doesn't come back empty. It comes back with fruit, with change. It's a change agent. The next scripture is going to be read by Marcy. So we're grateful for Marcy. She's been with us now for some time. Marcy's going to jump in here and read Romans fifteen four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So I'm not going to make you guess this one. This one's a hard one. I wrote down for this one that the word of God is multi-generational. And I even need to explain that. And here's the explanation. That's in Romans 15, 4, and it's talking about how the things that are in the Old Testament were written. Those things that happened to Cain, and between Cain and Abel, for example, or the things that happened to Abraham or Jacob or, or David, those things were written down for us as examples. And I think about that, I think, they're not only written down as histories, for our example, but that also means that God was in the events themselves in human, somehow God was in human events so that when those human events happened, those human events would set the course for us to learn from in the future. For example, the blessing to Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham was told to leave his country and he did. And because he did, God said, because you've had that faith, Abraham, I'm going to bless all families of the earth because of your faith. And so God was able to look, look forward thousands of years. And say, Abraham, I'm going to use this episode in your life as a mold, as a pattern to encourage other people thousands of years later and to bless them. Isn't that amazing? God not only uses the word, but he used events and circumstances and situations that people went through. And for, that, for us, those are both sometimes good examples, sometimes things that inspire us to go forward, and sometimes they're negative examples that we learn from those too. Let's, let's avoid those things and let's make better choices. So, the, it's, in that way, it's multigenerational. It, it, from one generation's able to learn from former generations, and that's the way the Word of God is. And finally, Sydney's going to read Second 2 Timothy, two fifteen. So, if the microphone could be taken to Sydney. Okay, Second 2 Timothy two fifteen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Okay, so this one's a little bit hard, too, because I had to say the word of God is, and then I had to put it into a structure of a passive voice. So I'm not sure if anybody can guess that, but but take a shot at that. Word of God is, is what? what? What would you say is a... Descriptor of the Word of God here. Something that what? Living water. It's something like living water, okay. I cleansing. It's cleansing, okay. Wanting. What's that? Wanting. Wanting. Okay. In what sense? It wants you to do okay. It's 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 asking. it's it's asking you to do something. So what I wrote here's I put it in a passive voice. The Word of God is to be handled well. It, it, it's asking you to handle it well. Uh, and so that's a, that's a good descriptor. So all of these words are descriptors of the Word of God. And so my question to us is sometimes, and I know that you, this has probably happened to you because it's happened to me, we're encouraged to read the Word of God and study the Word of God, and yet we're inconsistent with doing that. Why is it hard to be consistent in reading and studying the Word of God? And I've, and I've, God has taken me through some experiences that, uh, have brought me to a place where it's no longer hard for me to be consistent in reading and studying the Word of God. So I want to share with you, uh, something that God has showed me that's really made the Word of God, it's opened it up to it, to me and made it exciting for me that, that it's not a burden to think, oh, I need to read the Word of God every day. It's something that's just, I really look forward to doing. One of the things I want you to note is that, um, Not all words, and I should probably put a disclaimer here because you're going to think, wow, this sounds like heresy here. Not all words in the word are of equal value. Not all words in the word of God are of equal value. And before you condemn me on that, let me clarify. All words in the Bible are inspired and all of them have value, but not all of them have equal value. For example... So now faith, hope, and love abide, 1 Corinthians thirteen, thirteen. But the greatest of these is, not all of those are of equal value. In that chapter, faith, hope, and love are the, the three primary, and there's even some other things in that chapter, speaking in tongues, having all knowledge, some other things. But the greatest word of all of those words in chapter 13 of Hebrews is love. Not all words in the word have equal value. And there's plenty of examples of that uh, in the Scriptures. You should read the Word of God as if you were searching for treasure. You should read the Word of God as if you were searching for treasure. And I'll let you know in a few minutes what that treasure is. How do I find treasure in the Word of God? The first thing you do when you're reading the Scripture, when you're doing your daily Bible reading... Ask this question, what is this saying? What is this text saying? For example, in the, in the passage of 1 Peter chapter 1 that I read in the communion, what is it saying? It's saying, Peter is saying, I'm writing this to those of you Jewish people who are scattered, the elect who are scattered throughout different parts of Asia. You who are chosen for the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. What is it saying? Peter, the apostle, is writing to some people who were scattered. Apparently, they're of Jewish origin, and it's saying something about them being sprinkled with blood. That's what it's saying. And so you ask yourself, who is writing, where the person is that's writing it, who the the players are, who the people are that are involved, and what's the scenario? In this case, the scenario was they were basically homeless they were sojourners. They were scattered. They were living in a very itinerant way. And he even tells them in the book, you, you need to live like this place is not your home. That's what it's saying. And the next thing you ask, and that's called observation, by the way. You might want to write that down on your paper. That is called observation. So when you read a passage, you simply observe what it's saying. The next thing you do when you read a passage is you ask, what does it mean? (laughs) What does it mean to be sprinkled with blood? It says you're sprinkled with the blood, but I think that must be a metaphor for something. I think that must be symbolic of something. What does that mean? Or if you've read some of the older versions in Romans 12, it says instead of Returning anger for anger, in about verse 20, I believe it is, or 25. When someone does something bad to you, instead of returning evil for evil, return good for the evil deed they do to you. If someone does something evil to you, return good back to them. And that will be, if you read an older version, like heaping coals of fire on their head. You ever read that? That's what it says. What does that mean? What does that mean? If you read one of the newer versions, it will actually interpret it in a way that probably gives good meaning of that idea of heaping coals of fire. So instead of translating it, heaping coals of fire, it says when you do good to someone who does evil to you, it's like keeping lots of shame on them, making them burn with shame or making them feel ashamed of the way they're, they're treating you. What does it mean? So that's called interpretation. So you read a text, you read a verse. First of all, you simply observe what it's saying. And the second thing you do is you practice interpretation. And in interpretation, you're asking, Are those word pictures or are they literal words? Is there culture here involved? For example, in some of the texts in Corinthians, when it talks about women and it talks about them having a head covering, I believe some of the culture of the day was that if a woman had her head shaved, it was as if she were a woman off the streets, maybe a prostitute. And so head covering or hair on her head was symbolic in the culture of having a husband and living in a submissive relationship, uh, uh, him as a leader in, in the family. And so that's kind of what it was equated to. So if she shaved her head in that culture, it would be like saying, I have no husband. In fact, I am available. So a lot of times culture in enters into the way the scripture reveals certain truth. And so that's what you're doing in interpreting. You're asking, what do those words mean? Is culture involved in this? And what's the point? And that's called interpretation. And finally, when you're reading the word of God, you do this step right here. You ask, how do I put it into practice? Are there commands that I should obey? are there examples i should follow are there principles that i should embrace and that is called application and this is here's the point i really want to make with with you what i think will really make a difference in the way you approach god's word principles principles are the nuggets of gold you're looking for Principles are truths that are always true. Principles are truths or they're values with legs on them. They're things that you can live out in your daily life. Principles apply across all facets of your life. In all people, in all generations. A principle applies to every part of your life, in all, in, to all people, And in all generations, for example, in Galatians five, he will conclude neither circumcision matters nor uncircumcision. They were having discussions about, is it better for a man to be circumcised because that meant in the Jewish culture that you were committed to God? But there were lots of men coming to Christ in the first century that knew nothing about Jewish culture, so they weren't circumcised. And the apostle finally says, you know what, circumcision, even though it was part of the Old Testament and it has some value, it really doesn't matter. Neither circumcision matters nor uncircumcision matters. What really matters is faith working through love. That's a life principle. You know what the problems of a lot of churches are? They get stuck on a certain example or a certain command, and this is what we're known for. Maybe it's washing feet. Jesus gave a command in John 13 wash each other's feet. Maybe a church gets stuck on every time we assemble, we're going to wash feet. But what was the principle Jesus was teaching when he said, wash each other's feet? Take a shot. What was the principle he was teaching? Serve each other. That's a life principle that as I'm meditating on the Word of God, I can, I'm can. i thinking beyond washing feet. Poor soul who has to wash my feet. <laughs> I'm thinking, how can I serve my wife? How can I serve my brothers and sisters? How can I serve the people I'm going to work with today in my workplace? How can I serve them so that they can do their jobs better. Principles apply across all facets of one's life. They apply to all people, and they apply to all generations. What will really enrich your Bible reading is look for those nuggets of gold that Jesus wants you to to find and apply to your life. Not that examples, not that commands are bad. they're, They're fine, but they're not the best they're not the best. Neither circumcision or uncircumcision matter. What really matters is faith working through love. There are some principles through the scriptures that are consistent from the beginning to the end of the book. And I'm going to, look, I'm going to show you uh, with the rest of the time we have today uh, how to do that. But this is called, in some circles, the inductive method of Bible study. So I just put that up there in case you want to do an Internet search and learn some more about what this is, it's called the inductive method, but that sounds really like scholastic and university and stuff. I didn't even know what that's what it was called. I've always just called it common sense. Read the Bible in the context in which God inspired it. It's common sense. Find out why he said that to those people who said it and what he wanted them to do. And then ask yourself yourself. What's the principle? What's the truth that he not only wants them to apply, but he wants me to apply? That's that's what I do. And so that's observation, interpretation, and application. Maybe you like to have acronyms for things so that you can remember them. So I made an acronym for observation, interpretation, and application. And if you speak Spanish, this will really mean a lot to you. If you don't speak Spanish, you're going to learn a new word. The word is oia. Say oia. Three vowels in a row. What that means, that comes from the verb in Spanish oír, which means to hear. And oia is the past tense of hear. I was hearing. I was listening. What were you listening to? The Word of God. So there you go. You've got an acronym to remember when I listen to the Word of God, I simply observe, I interpret, and I apply. Oia, the Word of God. An example from Isaiah 6.3. We did this as men uh, shortly ago. And frankly, when we did it, it kind of caught me off guard because I hadn't really uh, spent much time meditating on this. But uh, we spent some time in, 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 our, in our men's group meditating on Isaiah 6.3. But I want to apply what I just shared with you to Isaiah 6. And I want to show you how um, you can meditate just on Isaiah 6.3, but you can also enrich your meditation if you do what I just shared with you. Isaiah, the first few chapters, talk about God is talking to his people and saying, my people have left me. Jerusalem and Judea which in that time was, was kind of the focal point of God's people, uh, they've left me. And in chapter 5, he says, they're like a, a vineyard that I planted. I toiled the soil. I prepared the soil. I planted this vineyard. And my vineyard started to grow. But when it started to grow, all it did was produce wild, sour, useless grapes. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to dig up my vineyard and get rid of it. Judgment. God, out of love, planted a vineyard, but now he's getting rid of it. And he says in Isaiah verse five, chapter five, verse eight, "Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you're made to dwell alone." Some people in their time, all they thought about was amassing more and more wealth. That's what God's people were doing. They were buying into the culture of amassing fortunes through real estate. If I can just make my house bigger, if I can buy more houses, if I can add more and more real estate, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be secure. What did they discover? The more and more real estate they added, the bigger and bigger house they got, the more and more the empty the rooms were. Fewer friends and family they had. They spent all this time working and amassing and had no one to share it with. I'm sure glad that doesn't happen in our culture. Aren't you? I think there's a principle there to apply. That wealth and amassing whatever it is, material things, they're not going to bring you happiness and they're not going to please God. God has a bigger purpose for you. Or woe to those, verse 11, chapter 5, who rise early in the morning that they can run after strong drink and tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Or verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men who mix strong drink. They had a problem with alcoholism. They had a problem with making Strong drink and alcohol as the center point of their social gatherings and their parties. They got together to drink together and mix all of their, small, their, their drinks and play their music, it says in, in verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 12. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and, and flute and wine at their feasts. They don't regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. I'm sure glad we don't have a problem in our culture, in our society with alcohol. Aren't you glad? That's their problem. Or is there a principle there for us to learn about indulging and overindulging in food and drink and looking for happiness there? And then he says in verses 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Who draw sin as with cart ropes. Who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we can see it. So those who who use uh, their position and their power to deceive. That was happening back then. Certainly is part of our society. Anyway, what is going on then in Isaiah chapter 6. When we get to Isaiah 6. That's the context of Isaiah 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, here's what happens. There's three principal people involved. God, the seraphim, and Isaiah. And here's what it says. In the year of King Isaiah that he died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two, he flew and one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and speak to the people. God is in the temple. The temple was the focal place of worship in the Old Testament. The temple is filling with smoke. But but Isaiah is seeing God in the temple, above the temple, and it's filling with smoke. And above the Lord, who is on this exalted throne and all of this smoke filling and creating really reverence and fear in Isaiah, there's these seraphim that are flying above the Lord. Seraphim are like mighty angels, any one of which can destroy entire armies. And these seraphim, we don't have a number here, but there's more than one, they're flying over, hovering over the Lord, and they have six wings each. With two of their wings, they're covering their eyes. The idea is that the Lord's holiness, His greatness is so great, they've got to cover their eyes. And with two wings, they're covering their feet. Like Moses was told not to uh, to, to dirty the holy ground in front of the Lord, the seraphim are covering their feet because of God's holiness. And with the other... Uh, two wings, they're flying. So they're flying over the Lord, and they are, they are shouting in a loud voice to one another, the seraphim are, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In spite of all the sin that's going on, that people are not seeing the Lord in His presence, the seraphim are saying, The whole earth is full of the Lord's glory. Isaiah's watching that. He knows he's sinful. That doesn't mean he's practicing all of the the drunkenness and all of the sinfulness of the people. But he knows he's unclean. And he sees that and he thinks his life is in danger. He's scared. He says, God... How can I see this? I'm going to die. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a society of people who are unclean. My life is gone. And at that moment, one of the holy seraph, one of the seraphim who are defending the holiness of God, go over to the altar which is in front of the temple. Grab one of the coals out that's burning hot and take it over and touch Isaiah's lips and purify him. A symbol that God purifies those who are humble before him. Isaiah just experienced this huge change, or at least relief, because he knows he he can't stand in, in God's holiness, in the presence of a holy God. So he's fearing for his life. But that fear at this moment is converted from fear scared to fear reverence. Here's a God who loves me. Here's a God who will cleanse me. And then God begins to say to him, I need to send somebody. I need a voice to go to my people. My people need to hear a message. Whom shall I send? Guess who volunteers? Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. So when you read Isaiah 6.3, what principles... Do we gain from observing what the passage says, from interpreting that the seraphim are covering their feet and covering their eyes out of reverence for a holy God on this throne? So we observe it and we interpret it. So I want you to help me make the application. What principles? What principles do we find in Isaiah six, verse three, and the verses that surround? What principles can we apply to us? Take a shot. What life principles? Well, let me let me give you a head start. God's—I'll just say this: God's holiness demands what? God's holiness demands. Respect. I put reverence. That works. Uh, When we are meditating on the great... When when you're walking around this evening or tomorrow, uh, when the sun comes up, which I guess is going to come up an hour earlier now, right? (laughs) How does that happen? Or maybe later. Which way does it work? I'm confused. Anyway, an hour different than yesterday. Uh, An hour later. When the sun comes up and you see the beautiful sky and the way it comes up the earth is full of the glory of god and hopefully your heart will be drawn to the creator and you will it will embolden will fill you with respect for the great creator who gives us every breath we breathe So one of the principles I learned from Isaiah 3 is God's holiness demands respect. Anybody else have a principle from Isaiah 6 that you've thought of? Humility. Humility. You nailed it right there. God purifies humble people. None of us deserve to stand before a holy God. And yet God has said, if you will humble yourself before me, I will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord. God purifies the humble. And so when we see a holy God, we look at this and we realize through Jesus Christ, God has said, I just want you to purify, be purified through obeying the gospel. And we, through faith, are baptized into Jesus Christ. God purifies us. Is that new with our generation? No, God's been doing that with all generations since Isaiah and before. He's always had a heart to purify The humble. And the third principle I put down here is God's holiness inspires us to his mission and to be his messenger. When you witness the holiness of God like Isaiah did, at first you might feel like your life is in danger. But then you realize because you've come with humility before him, he purifies you. And after you realize how great that is. The only thing you can think about is being his messenger. God, here am I. Send me. I'm ready to go. Do you have a message for your people? In Isaiah's time, he had a message for Judea, for Jerusalem. He has a message for the people today. When we see the holiness of God, we appreciate what he's done for us. We say, here am I. Send me. So I want you to think about when you do your meditations, it's not complicated, uh, but just look at the context, look at what, just observe what God is saying to whomever it is, through whomever it is, allow yourself to look for those nuggets of gold, allow yourself to look for those principles, the commands, the examples. Those things are great, but look for those principles that are eternal, and it will actually, it will absolutely uh, thrill you when you discover those and you're able to start applying them across all parts of your life and help other see them as well. Steve is going to lead us in a song right now, and uh, but first I'm going to pray, and so let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll be ready to sing with Steve. Father, I thank you so much. For the way you lift us up. Knowing that you're a holy and perfect God. There's so much imperfection and so much lack of knowledge of you in the world. And yet the earth is full of your glory. People have no excuse. Everything evidences a creator who, who created design and we live within the design that you created. We depend on everything for, from you, our next breath. We depend, we depend on you for everything, Lord, the functioning of our bodies. Uh, if any, any one thing stopped happening because you just decided you weren't going to maintain the, the way things work, we, we would lose our existence. And yet you maintain that. All things exist in you. So we thank you for that and we thank you for purifying us and we thank you for sending us on your mission. May we like Isaiah say, after we consider your holiness, here am I, send me.